Well, um, we are getting close to finishing our question series. Um, We actually have this one and then just one more next Sunday. And I've had a really good time going through it. If you haven't been with us, we've been basically talking about questions of the faith. So uh, there was one week where we talked about free will um, and do we even have free will? And does God uh, control everything or does he actually give us some options? Um, There was another week uh, this last Wednesday where we talked about Muslims and how do we witness to them and how do we lovingly show them the love of Jesus without being afraid of them. We've covered a whole bunch of topics and uh, today it is a series or it is a, a question about heaven, hell, suicide, and God's plan. So a lot of kind of questions that kind of take a little bit more of a a darker tone, but I think it's important for us to address these questions because I think these are questions that young people have, obviously because you guys have been the ones sending them in. And if we don't talk about this, then a lot of times it can just lead to more doubt and more confusion. So I just want to, as best as I can, lay this stuff all out and just tell you guys what the word says. So let's pray, and then we'll get into it, all right? Lord, we love you, and we just lift up this time, God, before you, and I just ask that you would speak because, God, I feel so unqualified to even talk about these topics, but I know that you have a plan for this time, and you have specific things you want to say to people, so I pray that you would just bless this word and that you would speak, Lord, in a powerful way. We love you, God, and we just ask that if there's anyone here who is struggling with these issues and feeling doubts and discouragements about these issues, I pray, God, that by the end of today, their spirits would be lifted and that they would feel so much more confident in you. We love you, Jesus, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, so our first question for today is kind of a lighter one. I'm going to start off with the light stuff. Um, It's, well, I don't know how light it is. Uh, The question is, will we lose our free will in heaven? So actually, yeah, that's pretty dark. (laughs) Like, will we become mindless robots in heaven? Um, There's many people I've seen who've uh, had this kind of idea, and it's bummed them out. They think of heaven, and they're like, okay, wait. So I have options now. Like, I can do things. I can can be a good person, or I can be a bad person, because I have choices. So when I get to heaven, what I've heard is there's going to be no sin. In fact, there's going to be no option to sin. So does that mean that basically, like, when we get to heaven, heaven, God just like slices our head and like takes out our brain and it's like, all right, now you are a mindless robot and all you can do is sing good, good father forever and ever. Amen. Um, Listen, I don't think that way and I have some encouraging words I think to say on this subject. So will we lose our free will in heaven? That's the question. The truth is we will lose our ability to sin and To be honest, that's not really much of a loss. It's kind of a gain. To lose your ability, think about it. What is sin? It's things that hurt other people. It's things that wrong other people. Do you like it when people sin against you? No, we don't. So in heaven, there will be no more sin. There will be no more sin nature. We will not have it in us to have the even option to sin. Now, if that sounds like a downside to you, I want you to consider this. God is perfect. Have you ever thought about God and been like, man, I wish I could be like him? Like just just perfect and and excellent and awesome and beautiful and no problems and, and just that power of the spirit. Have you ever looked at God and said, man, I wish I could be like him? Well, think about it. God is perfect. Can he sin? No, he can't. And it's not because someone restricted him. It's because it's not in his nature. For It'd be like if you asked, like, yeah, like, can light just all of a sudden be dark? 
Like you can turn off the light, but light can't become dark. Light or darkness is the absence of light, and sin is the absence of God. So for God, it, for for Him, He doesn't have the option to sin because it's against His nature. Is that a bummer for Him? Is He bummed out? No, God's not. He's not like, oh, I really wish I could lie to people. I really wish I could steal. I would just love it if I could. I don't know, I'm trying to think of some kind of sin. Like, God's not like, I really wish I could rob a bank. He doesn't need to because he has infinite riches. So he's not bummed. Now, here's the question. Is God free? Like, when you think of God, do you think of freedom? Yeah, like, absolutely. Think about it. Why did Adam and Eve sin in the first place? Because they wanted to become more like God. They ate the fruit because Satan said, there's things you don't know, and if you eat this fruit, then you can become like Yahweh. Then you can enlighten to this new level. And so they wanted to be more like God, but in effect, when they sinned, they became much less like God. See, that's the biggest difference between us and God right now. He created us as his children to be like him. He had a plan for us. He had power he wanted to give us. He had things he wanted us to do. And when we sinned, that was the defining distinction between us and the Lord. And so it's not a bad thing to not be able to sin because you look at God. Is he restricted? No. Is he less free? No. God is more free than you and me. Wouldn't you say, can't God do more things than you and I? Doesn't God have more options? Doesn't God have more power? Absolutely. So I look at God, I'm not like, oh, poor you, you can't sin. No, I'm looking at him, and I'm like, that sounds awesome. Now, like, here's the difference. Like, think about it this way. It's a really simple analogy, but um, <clears throat> so think of will as like cake, okay? Um, so let's imagine that there is Cake, that's just awesome, like ice cream cake. Like, think, what's your favorite cake, anybody? What's a really good cake? Ice cream cake, what I just said, perfect, love it. Um, so ice cream cake, we both agree on that. Um, and then imagine there's poison cake. So, like, which one's better to have, the cake or the poison cake? With us, we have will, but our will is corrupted, and so we are able to do things that cause us to die, that's sin. When we go to heaven, we will still have our will. We'll still have the cake, except it'll be the good cake. We will be able in heaven to have pleasure. We'll be able to have thrills, excitement, friendship, adventure. We're going to be able to have all the things that you love about this world. You will be able to have those things because those aren't bad things. That's one of the things I trip out about all the time. All the things that we experience on this earth that we love, hanging out with friends, going surfing, eating good food, like just adventures and going out. Do you ever like to just get in a car with your friends and go out somewhere and do something random and crazy and fun? Like, In heaven, we're going to be on this new earth with the new heaven, and we're going to have so much to explore and so much to do. All those things that we do to have fun on this world, those are good things that God made. Sin just corrupts them and perverts them and makes us think that the sinful way of living is more fun. In fact, it kills us. And so heaven is going to be life without limits. It's going to be awesome. Um, We will have choices in heaven. Like, you'll be able to choose, like, where do I want to go today in the new kingdom? What do I want to do? Who do I want to love? Who do I want to hang out with? How do I want to worship Jesus? How do I want to express my love for the Lord? You're going to have options in heaven. You're going to have choices. It's just that all the bad choices will be gone. And that, to me, sounds awesome. Think of it this way. Sin is like cancer. It kills us. It is not good. It corrupts the body Um, That's what cancer does. It corrupts your body and it kills you until, like, cancer will keep killing you until you're completely destroyed. Sin is the same way. 
in heaven, the cancer of sin will be removed. I'm not looking at my loss of sin nature as, oh man, poor me, now I don't have a choice and I can't do things. I'm thinking of it as, I see the sin in my life as a cancer that kills me. I want that completely removed so that I can live an even more free life. So that's my answer to that question. I hope it makes sense. The next question is about God and suicide. This is a really heavy question that I think a lot of people your age wonder. I know for certain that I've wondered it. What happens? What's the question? What if your friend kills themselves? Would they go to heaven or hell? What if they were religious? This is a big concern to people because I don't know about you, but when I grew up, I had several friends who contemplated suicide, and they would tell me that they were struggling with it. I've had friends who were cutters, and they would cut themselves, and we wondered, like, oh, my gosh, like, are they going to be okay? Like, are, they, is, are things going to progress to such a bad place where they might take their own life? Um, as a youth pastor, I have spent many years dealing with students who I love very much who also had suicidal thoughts and suicidal tendencies, and I even know people who've tried to take their own life. And so this is a heavy issue because you're always wondering, what does this mean? Like, if somebody does it, if somebody goes through with it and takes their own life, what does that mean? Because it's a sin to kill, and it seems like kind of a big deal, and, and it's like, these are the things that we wonder, like, like, being a Christian means putting your trust in Jesus, so if you commit suicide, isn't that not putting your trust in Jesus? In fact, I've... And maybe you've heard this, but I've heard straight up many people, um, usually older people in my life, who've just been like, "Yeah, straight up, like if you go to suicide, if you if you commit suicide, you're going to hell." I've heard that before, and so this is a question that I really wanted to dive into because I think it's an important one. So, a big concern that comes up in the Bible is Judas. With Judas, he was a follower of Jesus. But he never fully put his trust in Jesus. And what happened was you've got Jesus saying, follow me. Follow me, not just with your feet, Peter, James, John, Judas, with your life. Trust me. Put your whole trust in me. So Judas is following around Jesus, and he's going to town to town with him. And he's even doing miracles, and he's helping Jesus. But he gets to the point where he's like, I don't trust Jesus anymore. I don't think Jesus is who he says he is. I deny Jesus. I reject him. And he ends up selling out Jesus to the government for 30 pieces of silver, and Jesus ends up being crucified. Judas gets so upset about this because he realizes, you know, he he realizes that it's his fault that Jesus died. He realizes, like, I let Satan use me. And so Judas gets super depressed. And what he does is he goes out to a field and he hangs himself in just this complete, utter rejection of just, he's just giving up completely. And I know many people who think Judas went to hell. I'm inclined to think so, but not because he committed suicide. To me, I'm inclined to think that Judas was lost because we see that he never fully put his trust in Jesus. He never fully said, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the King of Kings. You're God. He didn't believe those things about Jesus. It was evident. So what does that mean? Like, Why would Judas go to hell? Was it because of suicide? No, it was because he rejected Christ. And so here's what it's important to know. Specific sins don't condemn you. Do you realize that? Do you get that? In our culture, a lot of times in the church culture, we rate different sins as higher than others. We think of certain sins like, you know, you lied to your mom, like, 
eh, you know, that's forgivable. You slept with your girlfriend, oh man, you're going to hell. Like we, we think that way a lot of times, but is that what the Bible says? See, the Bible says that all have sinned and rejected the glory of God. And so what that means is any sin, whether you murdered somebody or whether you told a little white lie, that is enough to get you into hell. Any sin, any sin, big or small. So there's no scale of going, oh, I'm better than this person. No, in God's eyes, we are all guilty. But if you follow Jesus and if you put your trust in him, there is no sin that can separate you from God's love. That's the amazing thing. Specific sins don't condemn you. There's only one sin that can, and that's the rejection of Jesus. Now, some people might say, well, suicide is murder. Because, and it is, it is. That's the, like, I'm not making fun of that. I'm not making light of that. You need to understand, see, God has a really high opinion of his fellow humans. Or not his fellow humans, I'm sorry. God isn't a human. God has a very high opinion of your fellow humans. You see, in God's eyes, every single person is precious. They're made in the image of God. In fact, in the Old Testament, before we had Jesus, it was so, God was, he, he had so much care uh, for people to respect life that when he said this, he said, listen, Here's my rule. If you kill someone else, then your punishment will be death. Your life will be taken because you, you need to respect the life of others. In the Old Testament, that was where we were at. And when Jesus came, what he said is, I care so much for humans that I actually want to die in their place. Here's the thing. Jesus forgives murderers. That's the crazy thing. I mean, we see in the Old Testament that God's justice shows us he has this really high view of murder. He says, you can't do it. If you do, you will have to die. Jesus shows up and he says, that's true. Now I'm going to die in your place to forgive even the worst murderer here. That's what's crazy to me, that Jesus loves everyone, including, that's hard for me, like to think that Jesus loves murderers. And then I remember what Jesus said, that if I look at someone and I hate them, he's like, you know what, Aaron, you're a murderer. If you look at someone and you hate them in your heart, it's just as bad as if you pulled the trigger on them. So we see this big God who forgives even murderers. Now, in Mark 3, verse 28 through 29, we see Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the or <clears throat> all sins will be forgiven the children of man, but whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. This is the verse about the unforgivable sin. And this is one I tripped out about a lot of times. Because when I grew up, I thought of the word blasphemy as just cussing. That's what I thought. It was just like cursing. So I was like, okay, so the only sin that's unforgivable is if I cuss and then like say Holy Spirit and then immediately my brain thought of a, a cuss word and then Holy Spirit and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to hell. I didn't even mean to do that. My brain just did it. Oh no. And that's what I thought. I thought it was just, if you swear in church, that's the unforgivable sin. Here's what it means. That word, that phrase, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So this is the unforgivable sin. If you blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, what that biblical word means is if you reject the Holy Spirit, if you 
completely don't want anything to do with the Holy Spirit. And this makes sense, because think about it. Whether you're a liar, a murderer, an adulterer, whether you're sleeping around, whether you're looking at porn, whether you're hating people, whether you just have hatred and bitterness in your heart, whether you are stealing and lying to your parents, and just all these things that as humans we do because at our heart we're wicked, if you do these things, you can be forgiven. Jesus says, listen, I, I hate your sin like a doctor hates the cancer in a patient, but he loves the patient, and he wants to remove you of the wicked things in you. And so the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, what that is, is it's you, if you die, and at the end of your life, you're like, Jesus, I want nothing to do with you. I don't care. I don't care. If that's your heart, that's the only sin God can't forgive, because you haven't accepted Jesus into your life. You haven't said, Jesus, I can't do it on my own. I need you. That's the one thing he can't forgive. And he wants to forgive all of our sins so bad. But he's saying to you, not like, listen, don't blaspheme me or don't, don't speak blasphemies against me because I will hate you and I won't forgive you. No, he's like, listen, if you reject me, if you die without accepting me, that's the one thing I can't save you from. You have to make the choice. So that's the unforgivable sin. If someone commits suicide, we might say, aren't they rejecting Jesus by committing suicide? If they kill themselves, aren't they saying, Jesus, I reject your plan for my life, so now I kill myself? We might say yes, but what about a true Christian who commits suicide? See, someone like Judas who rejects Jesus and says, Jesus, I don't need you. I don't want you. I'm just so fed up with myself. I hate myself. And they commit suicide. I believe, yes, they would go to hell. And that's tragic. I don't say that like, oh yeah, they deserve it. No, I I say that as that's so sad that someone would reject Jesus and kill themselves. But what about a Christian, a true Christian who commits suicide? Why do people commit suicide? Because of depression, guilt, lies, and the temptation to give in to sin. Now here's the question. Do people who commit other sins experience those things? Christians who steal, Christians who sleep around, Christians who give into drugs. Listen, I've been doing this for a long time. I've met so many people who love Jesus, but they've fallen into sin. I'm thinking of people I know who've fallen into hard drugs. What led them to it? Depression, guilt, lies and temptation from the enemy. So the same symptoms. And those things break God's heart. But here's the thing. If somebody is a Christian and they're led by the enemy, they're tempted and they go through depression and struggle and the enemy's tempting them, sleep with her, sleep with him, do these drugs, lie to your parents, and they give into temptation, does that mean that Jesus says that's unforgivable? No. Absolutely not. Well, some people then might say, but you know what? That's the sin that they commit right before their death. So it's kind of their last thing that they do before they die. So they'll go to hell, right? Well, I don't think so. You see, Jesus paid for all sins on the cross, past, present, and future. So if I'm a Christian and I'm walking with Bobby and Bobby asks me something and I tell him a lie and then I get hit by a truck two seconds later, does that mean that I'm going to hell? Guys, I don't think that God's grace is that small. God paid for our sins, past, present, and future. The question is not if the person who dies is in sin. It's have they put their trust completely in Jesus. Here's the reality. Christians make horrible mistakes. Somebody who is committing suicide 
who is a Christian, who's just going through the darkest moment of their life, and they're struggling, and, and they're dealing with this darkness, and, and they're, they're just having such a hard time, and they don't want to do it, but they give in, and they kill themselves. It's so tragic, but listen, guys, I think God's grace can cover that, because here's what Romans 8, 37 to 39 says. Not, we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, no things present, nor things to come, nor powers, or height, or depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, I think if I were to die, and my last thing I did was a sin, whether I lied to somebody or whether I took my own life, I do not think that if I trusted in Jesus, but I had a moment of weakness and I gave in temptation and I sinned, I don't think that God would cast me out because his love is bigger than that and it's greater than that. Now here's the other side of the coin though. So if you're here today and you struggle with suicidal thoughts and you've ever wondered like, will I go to hell? Will I go to hell? I don't think so. If you put your trust in Jesus, I don't wanna tell you that. I don't wanna tell you that you'll go to hell because I don't think it's true. If you're here today and you don't trust Jesus and you kill yourself, then yes. But if your trust is in Jesus and you make a mistake, His love is big enough to cover that. Here's the other side of the coin, though. Suicide is terrible. It is something that is so just wrong, fundamentally. It's giving in to Satan in one of the darkest ways that we can because God has such a plan for your guys' life. When before you were born, he knew you, and he had this vision for these things that he wanted to do in and through you, these great things he wanted to accomplish, these great things he wanted to bring you through, blessings. You see, life is not all about just getting to that future heaven. God has a plan for you here and now. He has a life for you. He has things that he wants to do to use you. And, And if you struggle and you just wanna give up, the Lord would say to you, don't give up. Don't end it. Because I am just beginning my good work in you. And you're going to miss out. And you're going to hurt so many people. I've seen suicide wreck families. I've seen moms who 15 years later still are just every day just like lost in sorrow because their son or daughter took their life. And, and friends torn apart. And it's one of the worst things you can do to the people around you. And so if that's you, if you're here today and you struggle with suicidal thoughts, listen, I know students here who've gone through that and they've come out the other side and they could help you. They could talk to you and say, I was where you were and I got through that. We have pastors and counselors and people who can help you if you struggle with that. No one should have to go through that alone. And you will never be judged by me or one of the leaders here if you struggle with those things. We will only throw our arms around you and hug you and say, we love you. Let's pray. Let's get through this. You're not alone. So you need to know that. Suicide is one of the worst possible things you can do. But I think God's grace is so big that it can cover it. So let's move on to a question that we were supposed to talk about last time, um, our first message about free will. I think it's a really good question. The question is, so God gives us a choice, but is it really a fair choice? Because God seems to require love and not giving it to him leads to hell. It's like God is holding a gun up to my head and saying, love me, how is that right? It's kind of intense. Is God holding a gun to our head called hell? 
Is he saying, love me or I will send you to hell? That's what many people believe, even Christians. Guys, I have to tell you, I believe that view is a lie from Satan that keeps so many people from coming to freedom in Jesus. The idea that God is saying, listen, it's my way or the highway, and if you don't love me, I will kill you. That is such a warped view of the truth of God. Here's a few things to consider. One, God doesn't require love. He doesn't require anything. He could keep himself entertained and fulfilled forever. He doesn't require love. He desires love. He's full of love, and he wants to give it. And so many people assume the reason God made people was purely to get their love. But no, God made you because he desired to give you love. He's not a selfish God. The Bible says he's a selfish God, but it's not our way of thinking selfish. He's not selfish in the sense where he made you and said, you will be my slave, serve me. No, he's selfish in the way, or he's jealous in the way where if a husband sees his wife with someone else, he goes, oh, I don't like that because she's my wife. God made you as his children, as his bride, and he gets jealous when we give ourselves to idols. He's not selfish, he's loving. And I know I mean, if you doubt that you need to know this, if you doubt that you need to know that God desires to give you love, you need to know this. God knew before he made people that he'd have to die for them. Have you ever thought about that? Before God made us, he knew the cost. He's like, I'm gonna make humans. What'll happen? Let me use my God vision. Oh, snap. Like, they're gonna be terrible. They're gonna sin. I'm going to have to die on the cross for them. He knew that before he made us. How can you call him selfish when you understand that? Who does that? If I knew that I had a baby, if I was going to have a baby and I could look into the future and I knew that it would grow up to stab me to death, I would not have that baby. I would adopt. I would not have that kid. God knew and he didn't care. He said they're worth it. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? I love that. Another aspect of the question is, do we really have a choice if the alternative is hell? Think about this. Does the existence of consequence remove your ability to choose? Think about it. Does the existence of consequence remove your ability to choose? A man who steals a car knows there's a huge chance he will get caught and punished. However, he still has the ability to choose to steal the car or not. Listen, God is the source of all life and beauty and truth. He doesn't force us to be with him. So if we choose not to, what is the consequence? What will be missing? Think about it. If God is full of life, love, beauty, and truth, if God is the source of life, love, beauty, and truth, if we choose to cut him out of our life, what will our life be missing? Life, love, beauty, and truth. He's the source. It's like if I cut Kellogg's out of my life, can I still have awesome cereal? No. He is the source. We're left with what? Misery, unfulfillment, and hell. How do we go down that road? by lying to ourselves, You see, the car thief is living based on a lie. He is stealing because in his brain, he's convinced himself, I won't get caught. Listen, without God, we are living out a lie. We tell ourselves, I can stand in a fire and not get burned. It's just not true. Speaking of fire, I think we should take a moment to talk about hell for a second. 
Now, there's a guy that I like. I read his book. His name is Joshua Ryan Butler, and he has some interesting thoughts about hell. Um, I want to show you guys his video and kind of his point of view, and then I'm going to take some time to kind of unpack um, my views as well. So um, here it is. I think this is a good way to kind of shift our perspective on hell. So we're going to watch this video, and then we're going to unpack it through the rest of the teaching. Many of us fear hell is a skeleton in God's closet, an underground torture chamber that looks like this. Well, that's not quite right. Okay, well, you probably have this picture that right now I live here on Earth. And one day I'll die, and God will either send me up to heaven or down to hell. The problem is, this isn't how the Bible actually talks about it. In the Bible, the story goes like this. Heaven and Earth are created as good by God. However, when we rebel, they're then torn apart by the destructive power of sin, death, and hell. But God is good, and he's on this mission to reconcile heaven and Earth to bring back together what hell has torn apart. Jesus' word for hell is Gehenna. It's a valley outside the city of Jerusalem, and it was a place known for child sacrifice. People would go outside the city, light the flames, and murder their children in this really distorted religious practice. And it's interesting to note, the flames of Gehenna were lit by human hands, and the people killing their kids were going back into the city to sleep at night. So for the prophets, Gehenna became the symbol for idolatry and injustice, and what's wrong in Jerusalem and in the world as a whole. But the hope of the prophets was that God was going to return one day as the good king to redeem Jerusalem and kick out all the rebellious, destructive powers outside his city. The reason hell's destructive power is kicked outside the city is because it stands opposed to the good and redemptive things God wants to do inside the city. So we see that hell's location is not underground, it's outside the city. And its purpose is not torture, it's protection. But is it a chamber? The irony is that we want hell, we want life without God, and we choose destructive things all the time that are tearing our world apart. Take sex trafficking, for example. Most of us want that out of God's world. I spent a summer overseas working against it and was disgusted by the exploitation of kids for sex. But as I read my Bible, I realized Jesus wants sex trafficking out of his world too, only he takes it a lot more seriously than I do. I want to prune back the problem of sex trafficking. Jesus wants to dig out the root the root of things like pride, lust, rage, and greed, things we all struggle with. Luckily, Jesus' question for us is not, are you good enough to get into my city? His question is, rather, will you let me heal you? God wants to forgive. Hell's not locked from the outside. It's locked from the inside if we refuse to be healed. So, lots of people think of hell as a skeleton God's hiding, something that makes him look vindictive and vengeful, but I've actually found it to be one of God's greatest acts of mercy. Right. All right. So, let's talk about hell for a second. Let's break that all down. What is hell? The original question made it sound like God is holding a gun up to our heads called hell. Choose me or I'll throw you into hell. Let's talk about what hell even is. So what is hell? Hell is primarily, fundamentally, an existence without God. A life where God is not there and an eternal destination, an existence where God does not exist anywhere. Hell is an existence without God. Now hell is kind of mysterious in ways. There's a lot of different verses in the Bible that talk about hell, and a lot of times there, there are these pictures that are being painted, these word pictures, and, and it's, I think it's important that we draw those all together to kind of see what the Bible is saying. You know, Matthew 25, verse 41 says, it is an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now think about that. An eternal fire made for the devils and his angels. So was hell designed for humans? The answer is no. 
You see, the purpose of hell was never for humans. It wasn't that God, when he, in the beginning, he's like, all right, it's the beginning, so I'm going to make heaven for the good people, hell for the bad people, and earth for the in-betweeners until they figure it out. No, the purpose of hell was never for humans. The purpose for humans was always and still is heaven and earth. The Bible actually hardly ever says the words heaven and hell together. It says heaven and earth over and over and over again. However, hell is a real place where humans can end up, which is tragic because it wasn't designed for humans. That's an important thing you need to understand. Hell was not made for the bad people. Hell was made for Satan and his demons. Humans, every human you see, was made for earth and heaven, which is so tragic that they might end up in a place they were never designed for. Hell does not sound good. I'm going to read you guys some verses about hell. The Bible paints pictures and glimpses of what it will be like. In Daniel 12, verse 1 through 2, it says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, so many who are currently dead now, shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's interesting. What the Bible is saying is that no one is actually in hell right now. People who've died before you and you've thought, oh yeah, he's probably going to hell. He's not actually there yet. He's in the ground. The Hebrews, there's a word that says hell a lot of times in the Bible in the Old Testament. A lot of times it's just the word sheol, which means the grave. So the ground. But what this is saying is that one day the people who are dead will wake. The people who've sinned and not accepted Jesus will wake. And they will wake up not to everlasting life, but to everlasting death. That sounds terrible. 2 Thessalonians 5 verse 1 or verses or 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 5 through 10 says when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might so everlasting destruction eternal punishment it does not sound great Isaiah 6, 22 through 24. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For the worm shall not die, and the fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. It's talking about this eternal state of just being alive but suffering. A lot of people I've heard when I was your guys' age was like, man, hell sounds better than heaven. Heaven is just going to be just just stuck up religious people. Hell is going to be a party forever, man. That doesn't sound like a party. In Matthew verses, or chapter 25, verse 31 through 46, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. And then he shall say to his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's so sad. In that final day, we're going to have the people who follow Jesus, not the good people and the righteous people, but the people who were sinners but accepted Christ, and they put on his robes of righteousness and were seen as clean in God's eyes. They're going to be told, hey, listen, enter into the kingdom that's been prepared for humans for all time. The sad thing is the people who go to hell, hell wasn't prepared for them. 
See, the kingdom was prepared for them. It was meant for them. That's what humans were made for. So hell isn't a destination. It's, it's living through your whole life and wondering, is there something better? And then finding out there's something much worse and you never get to experience what you were made for. It's tragic. The Bible talks about fire, smoke, pain, suffering, crying, wailing, being in so much just distress that you're grinding your teeth together from the pain forever, no way out. And all of these images the Bible gives us go to show us the main point of God. Hell is an existence without our creator. You see, I do not believe that hell is a torture chamber that God made to torture people for their sins. Like, I don't think, like, when we get to heaven, God is going to have one foot in heaven parting with us, and then the other foot, he's going to be in hell, like, stabbing people with a pitchfork. I don't believe that's what the Bible's talking about. But I do believe it'll be a place of eternal sorrow and punishment and destruction. See, hell is an eternal state of the person who does not allow Jesus to save them. And that results in eternal death, punishment, and suffering. Let's break this down. What does Jesus save us from? Anybody? He saves us from our sins. What do our sins do? Who do they separate us from? They separate us from God. So if we don't allow Jesus to save us for our sins... In the end, what will we be forever? Separated from God. Where is hell? Is it in the center of the earth? The Bible doesn't actually say. It doesn't talk about hell being at the core of the earth, and if you dig far enough, you'll get there. I don't, I don't believe it is. I believe hell right now is a part of the spiritual realm. Just like in heaven, the, the, the heavenly state right now, it's not physical, it's spiritual, but one day God will unite heaven and earth together, and we will live in physical bodies. Hell, to me, seems more like a spiritual realm place where you're in this state of just non-existence, where, where you don't have this physical body and you're being tormented by spiritual fire and separation from God. And that sounds terrible. You see, on earth, we live in an amazing state where even though much of humanity does not currently follow God, God is with us. That's the amazing thing. Think about it. Right now on earth, people are in sin, and their sin separates them from God, but who is still with them? God is there. For every drunk or prostitute on the corner of the street, God is standing next to them saying, wake up, open your eyes, I'm here. For every person who is living in sin on this planet, God is loving them and trying to reach them. I've seen so many people who were living lives of complete sin, but because of the power of Christ, his love broke through, and they were able to be saved the differences in hell, there will be no more chances. God won't be there. It's terrifying, the thought of God not being there. So you can be someone who is not saved and yet still benefit from the amazing things that come from God. Think about that. Like, don't take that in a weird way. But if you're a non-Christian here today, you can still benefit from some of the good things God gives, like love, truth, happiness, hope, and joy. Non-Christians can experience those things. They can experience love. They can experience truth, happiness, hope, and joy, because all good things come from God. Put it this way. Even though you don't, like if you were here and you didn't believe in the sun, you're like, I don't believe in the sun. I only believe in science. And it's like, wait, the sun is science. What? Like, that's what you were saying. But you, can, you could totally not believe in the sun, but still experience the effects of his warmth, Right? 
Does that make sense? You could totally not believe in the sun at all, but you could still walk outside and be like, hmm, it's warm. And your friends are like, yeah, it's the sun. You're like, nope, I don't believe in the sun. You could be that guy. Hell is going to be like if the sun got taken away and it's just utter darkness and coldness forever. Hell is an existence without God. If God is the source of all good things and if hell is an existence without God, what is missing from hell? Anything good. Love, truth, hope, joy, beauty, When you take all these things away, what do you have left over? Only pain and suffering remain. Listen, friends, if we are offered a choice to leave this broken and dying, painful existence and go to a new world that God is making that is perfect, if we stay behind, whose fault is it? To answer the original question with another question, if we stay behind, whose fault is it? The original analogy that the questioner posed was, is it God holding a gun to our head saying, love me or die? I don't agree with that. I'm going to offer a better analogy, I think. Imagine that you, in this room, so like you guys, imagine that you represent all of humanity, and you're citizens of a kingdom, and it's a walled city, and it's a great city built by an amazing king. Are you with me? Are you guys imagining this? You're citizens of the kingdom, it's walled, it's awesome, you have this great king, and you have everything you could possibly want. You have all the food you could ever want, but guess what? You eat it, and you never get fat, so just like pizza all the time, and yeah, right? All your favorite food, but like it doesn't go straight to your hips. Like, be amazing, right? Ladies, and me, a guy who struggles with his weight, and any other dudes here who do. Like, I mean, some of you guys are like, I eat everything I want all the time, and it never affects me, and I'm awesome, and look at my abs. And I'm like, shut up. <laughs> You're dumb. Um, I'm jealous of you. Um, anyway, though, uh, if that's you, I love you, but I, I am jealous of you. So um, anyway, though. So just imagine you're in this world where you can have anything you possibly want. You have all the food that you want. Um, Nature is awesome. There's animals that are fantastic. Um, You have money and all the clothes you could ever want, all the Jordans you could ever want. You have all the stuff you could ever want. You have great jobs that you actually enjoy. No school, but actually like good paying jobs. And just, so just imagine your favorite thing. And it's like, now you're paid for it. Awesome. Video games. And I get $100 for every point I get. Awesome. And then, you know, four-day weekends all the time. Just fantastic, hanging out with your friends, amazing, just relaxing, um, amazing husbands and wives, like everyone you have a crush on right now. You're married, and it's awesome, and life is great, and you're getting ready to start having kids and start a family. You have so much time with your friends to enjoy life. Life without struggle, you're set. Imagine that, that perfect world. Who gave it to you? It's the king. Like, he literally dedicated his life to building this kingdom, this city where you could thrive, where you could just have an awesome life. And the king lives beyond the wall in a castle, but he built this bridge so he can come spend time with you, and he comes every day. He's the best king. He loves his people. He always makes sure everyone is cared for. He's super fun and cool to hang with. He tells the best jokes and stories. And, and the king says to this to you guys, he's like, oh, guys, like, just imagine like after a great day of hanging out with the king, you guys are cracking jokes and telling stories, and the king just bought everyone pizza. You're like, king, you're so rad. And the king's like, oh, I love you guys so much. And the king says, listen, guys, I got to lay down some real talk, some truth right now. Check this out, guys. Uh, you can do whatever you want here in my kingdom because it's our kingdom. I made it for you. But there's just one thing. Um, see, there's this door on the south side of the kingdom. Don't ever open that door. And you're like, why? What's in the door, king? And he's like, trust me, really bad stuff will happen if you open that. In fact, you'll all be dead meat if you open that door. Like, just don't touch it. Just no touchy, no touchy on the door. Don't do it. Now, pause. Is the king threatening to kill you 
If you open the door, he's like, if you open the door, I will stab you in the face. Like, is that what he's saying? No. No. And you love him, not because he's forcing you. You love him naturally. Like, let me ask you, the people in your life, why do you love them? It's probably because they're awesome, right? Because they're your friends and you enjoy hanging out with them and they give you stuff and they bless you and they take care of you. Like, those are the kind of people in my life that I love. People who are good friends. So the king... You don't love him because he's forcing you. You love him because it's a natural outflow of how awesome he is. You're like, this king is the best. He gave me everything. He's amazing. So you're like, I don't need to think about it. But then you start thinking about that door, okay? You guys in the room, okay? Remember, this is you. So you're in the city, and you start thinking about that door, and a few of you guys decide, anyone want to volunteer to be the bad guy in this scenario? Angela. Angela's like, guys... But what about that door? I mean, maybe the king's got some really sweet stuff in there, like even better pizza? I don't know. And you guys start talking about it, you know, and you're like, oh my gosh, like what is in that door? Maybe the king is hiding some pretty cool stuff. And you think it won't hurt to take a peek. So you do. You open up the door. Here's what happens. Turns out the door led to two things. The blast furnace that controlled all the heating of the town and the prison where all the murderers and criminals are kept. They were there before the kingdom was built, like the last people who were crazy, and the king built this kingdom on top of this jail. So the door goes flinging open with this massive explosion, and now all the criminals are free, and the town is on fire. There's criminals running around killing and stealing people. Stop for a second. Whose fault is this? Is it the king's? No, it's yours. But he, but he, he should have put a lock on the door. Like if you didn't want me to open it, he should... Should put a lock on it, King. It's your fault. No, he trusted you. He gave you the choice because he loved you and he wanted you to choose to obey. You didn't. Who's at fault? The rule maker or the rule breaker? Think about that. That's a pretty like that's a pretty easy answer for most cases. Who's at fault? The rule breaker or the rule maker? So the king is in his castle. He sees your village on fire, and the bridge from the castle to the kingdom is burned, and the king is separated from the people, and the king knows that the people did this to themselves. He knows that you did this to yourself, and he's like, he's, you know, he could say, I could go start another kingdom, but instead he says, no, I love these people so much that I must rescue them. So the king and his son, the prince, go out from the castle, and together they begin building this new bridge, and it takes a long time, but they work their way across, and they risk their lives through the flames however when they get to the end of the bridge to the door it's surrounded by fire and for anyone to open that door it would mean instant death from the flames however the king and the prince decide they love the people too much to let them die and so the son the prince decides to sacrifice his life for you the people who made the mistake and the prince opens the door and he's consumed by the flames but now the door is open and the people can come through so now there is a kingdom on fire but the king and his son have built a bridge that costs the son his life and the door is now wide open and the king declares anyone who wants to escape this burning village can come live with me in the castle it's big enough for you I have room for all of you and my families and and my son died so you can come come stay in my castle and when the flames are gone we will rebuild the city and make it better than it was before here's my question I hope you get it are you with me are you guys getting it here's my question With an invitation like that, if someone chooses to stay in the burning city, whose fault is it they're in a burning city? It's their own. God did everything. He made us. He gave us breath, oxygen, life, family, friendships, liberty, free will, a purpose, a God who loved us. We humans, 
threw it all away when we sinned. We set the garden on fire. We released the destruction into the world. God and his son, Jesus, built a bridge back to us. That's the entire story of the Old Testament. When you're reading the Old Testament, realize it's God building a bridge to you. God laying piece by piece a way for people to come back to the good life, a life of freedom. Jesus comes and he says, I am the bridge. I am the door. And our sin kills him, but he dies and comes back and he busts that door of the grave of death wide open and he says, come and join me in the kingdom. And he says, you see that our world is dying. Listen, the forces of heaven and hell are fighting over this world. Satan and his demons are here, but so is our God fighting for us, trying to win our hearts and minds. And we see both forces, the forces of heaven and hell fighting. Heaven, kindness, peace, love, joy, all good things coming from God. And we also see the forces of hell on this earth. Violence, racism, sexual abuse, brokenness, hatred. God is fighting to bring us a new world, a perfect world world that is free from these things. In the Bible, there's foreshadows of hell that we see on earth, foreshadows of hell in the physical world. Jesus talks about it in the garden of Gehenna. We saw that in the video. So there is this garden, or not this garden, this valley called Gehenna, and Jesus calls it hell. He says, this is hell out here. And basically, it was this flaming valley where people would come, and in the past, they would sacrifice their children. It was a trash heap that was always on fire, so you've got garbage. You've got the bones of children that have been sacrificed. Jesus looks, and he goes, yeah, this place is pretty hellish. And what he's saying is not that when you die, you're going to go to this actual trash heap outside of Jerusalem. He's using it as a picture. He's saying, just as this place, Gehenna, is a place of sin, Hell will be a place of eternal sin. Just as this place is a place of fire and death, hell will be a place of eternal fire and death. Just as this place is outside of the city of Jerusalem, so hell will be a place outside the city of heaven. Jesus is using all of these pictures. Now here's what's interesting. The Bible doesn't mention a kingdom of hell. No one is in hell right now. They're dead and waiting for judgment. Satan is not ruling from hell. Satan is not sitting on the throne of hell. Satan is actually here on earth with us. This is where his power comes from now, but the end result of it will be hell. So to me, I think of it this way. I think of it like this. Like, is Germany a place or a force? You might say a place. Like, oh, it's this actual physical place where you can go. But there's different ways you can look at it. For instance, if you go to Germany and you're hanging out in Berlin, you're like, oh, Germany is a place. However, however, if you're a Jew in the 1940s and you're being attacked by the Nazis, Germany, like if you're, if you're in uh, Holland or Sweden and Germany flies by and drops bombs, you're looking at Germany and you're like, Germany is not just a place, it's a force. It's coming against me. Hell is the same way. It's a physical place that we go when we die if we do not follow Jesus, but it is also a force of evil. And we see the forces of hell constantly working in our life and in our world. For instance, right now there are mothers in Haiti and they've run out of flour and they're forced to make cookies for their children out of mud. That's a place where we see glimpses of hell on earth, glimpses of what that future place is going to be like. 
We see women stoned to death in Afghanistan for adultery. That's a place where we see things of hell here on earth. We see infants dying every 30 seconds of malaria in Africa. Totally curable disease, but they don't have enough help. That's a place where we see hell winning on earth. We see six-year-old girls in Thailand who are sold for sex and prostitution. That absolutely is a place where we see the forces of hell working on earth. In fact, here's just a few ways that the forces of hell invade our world. Through war, through racism, through abortion. The kid, like That's one of the, just so, such a big deal. So many babies every year killed, sacrificed on the altar of convenience. We see idolatry constantly, people worshiping things that aren't God. People putting so many things, their money, their politics, their stuff over the Lord, their, their musicians and their concerts and their movies and their celebrities. There's so many things that we can put before the Lord, and all of these things advance the kingdom of hell. In fact, think of it this way. There's ways that we could advance the kingdoms of the world. That's what the Bible calls it. The Bible never actually says the kingdoms of hell. It says the kingdoms of this world. So Satan is the kingdom. He's the leader of the kingdom of this world. Jesus is the leader of the kingdom of heaven, which one day will come and restore the world to what it was meant to be. But right now, this world is ruled by the dark powers. So how are ways that we can advance the kingdom of the world, which really is the kingdom of sin and hell? Well, one, refusing to love others and I didn't, I didn't put these circles in specific countries to be like, oh, uh, I'm really bad with geography. What would this be over here? It's like the UK, right? Europe? You're like, Europe's really bad at disobeying their parents. Like, I don't know. Um, but what I'm saying is just around the world, refusing to love others. When we refuse to love others, we advance, not the kingdom of heaven, but the kingdom of the enemy. When we disobey our parents as young people and we don't respect them and we live for ourselves, that advances the kingdom of the enemy. When we live for greed, selfishness, sexual brokenness. Guys, you may not think that you sitting around and liking sketchy pictures of girls on Instagram or texting sketchy stuff to girls is advancing the kingdom of hell, but it absolutely is. Absolutely. Selfishness idolatry, these things don't move the kingdom of heaven forward. They move the agenda of the enemy forward. So I had more stuff, but I am going to end somewhere. It's probably good to end somewhere, right? I had something I want to share with you guys. Does that, I mean, does that make sense? Do the things I'm saying about hell make sense to you guys? Yeah? It's, I'm trying to move you guys past just this typical understanding of, yeah, I mean, heaven's the bright place, hell's the fiery place. Hell is something where you can't just think of it in the future. You have to realize Satan is at work right now, and he's doing things in this world, and he wants to rob you of what God has for you now. God wants to spread the kingdom of heaven here on earth. That's what we pray. Thy will be done, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see that day when Jesus comes back and he restores everything, when he brings this together, heaven and earth. And right now we're, we're dealing with this. But he's coming back. And we don't want to live for this because that gets us nowhere. Now listen, guys, I have been teaching, but at this point, I want to just preach to you guys for just a few minutes before we wrap up. 
I feel like God gave me a word for this youth group specifically. See, you may be asking, what's God's will for my life? After all these messages about free will and heaven and hell, you're probably wondering, like, what's God's will for my life? The answer is this, to be a disciple of Jesus. Yeah, but what about my school and my job and who's going to be my boyfriend? I'm speaking from the girls' perspectives, not from the guys. Listen, God has a plan for that too. Who's going to be my boyfriend? No, nobody. Absolutely nobody. God has a plan for those things, but that's not the focus. If that's your focus, you're never going to be happy until you realize that God's overarching plan and purpose for you is to be a disciple. You will never have happiness in your life. Listen, listen, please, if you're sitting there and talking to your friends, just give me a few more minutes because I'm wrapping up. Burn this into your brain. Disciple is a noun, not a verb. Listen, a follower of Jesus, that's something that you are. In fact, disciple is used 268 times in the New Testament as a noun. But we kind of think of it in the modern church as a verb. People often ask me, like, Pastor Aaron, who are you discipling right now? And in churchy language, what that means is, like, who do you take out to lunch and talk to about Jesus? But really, I think what I should be saying is, like, Aaron, who are you discipling? Nobody. Why? Because you can't disciple anybody. You either are or are not a disciple. Think about it. Use any other churchy word. Aaron, who are you Christianing today? Uh, nobody. Who's Christianing you? Jesus? You either are or you are not a Christian. Aaron, who are you believering? Believering. Nobody. You either are or not a believer in Jesus. Aaron, who are you followering? Followering. Like on Instagram? No. Who, who, like, you either are or are not a follower of Jesus. I think you get the point. You're like, Aaron, we got it the first time. Listen, why does it matter? I'm going somewhere with this. If you think disciple is just a verb, as something that's done to you, someone disciples me, it puts the responsibility of you following Jesus and being transformed by him on someone else, on your mom, on your dad, your sibling, your Bible class teacher, your friend, your pastor, one of the counselors. The responsibility is not on you to follow Jesus, it's on someone else. And that's not all wrong. Listen, I'm your pastor and I love you guys dearly. I have a huge responsibility through my words and my actions in my life to teach you the truth and the ways of Jesus. But listen, I have seen students leave for lives of sin, rejecting following God and digging their life into a mess and their excuses, well, no one discipled me. And what they really mean is nobody ever transformed me into the image of Christ. Some of you rely on others to make you a disciple. Some of you have done amazing when you've met with a counselor. When you've had that one-on-one time for a couple months and you're just talking with your counselor and they're taking you out to lunch and you're going through Jesus stuff, you're doing great in your life. But once you stop meeting with that counselor, you slip into patterns of sin and show up to church once in a blue moon. It's because you're relying on someone else to be discipling you. Instead of choosing to be a disciple, when you realize this, guys, disciple is not something someone else does to you. It's something that you are. It's a noun. It's, it's an identity. It's a label. It puts the responsibility to follow Jesus and be transformed in his image on who? On you. You have to do it. And not in the individualistic sense. You need a community of believers around you. You need Christian friends to support you, pastors and parents and counselors. But in fact, if you're choosing to follow Jesus, you should be constantly asking the counselors and your godly relatives, how can I follow Jesus better? Do you know how often a student asks me that, honestly? Do you know how often someone comes to me and says, Aaron, 
Like, how can I follow Jesus better? Can you pray for me? Like, I, I'm really struggling. Usually, I have to pull people's teeth to get them to admit there's a problem, to say, like, hey, I need help. It's rare. Usually, I'm the one, and me and the counselors are the ones calling people and chasing after them and saying, hey, you haven't been to church in, like, three months. Are you okay? Like, I really think you should follow Jesus. Shouldn't it be the other way around? As followers of the disciples, shouldn't we, as followers of Jesus, shouldn't we be going and saying, hey, listen, I need your help. Like, I'm struggling in this area. Can you help me follow Jesus? Listen, guys, you have to decide. You have to choose. I can't make the choice for you. I can't make you like Jesus. I can offer you a roadmap. I can walk on the path next to you. I can point you to the amazing godly people who have walked that path before you, who can help you along the way. I can say, hey, look, let's walk this path of Jesus together. But that's all I can do. You have to choose. And at the end of the day, you have to make a choice. Like Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Once you do, guys, you'll find that his cross is not heavy because he's helping you carry it. But you have to choose to let him. God has given you a beautiful gift of life and choice. Don't waste it. Choose to follow Jesus. Let's pray. God, God, I just admit that when I was growing up, I was so afraid of just hell in the sense of pitchforks and and flames and devil horns. But now, God, the thing that scares me the most about knowing people are going to hell is that they won't have you and they'll be separated from you. They'll be out in the cold, separated from warmth. They'll be in the darkness with no light forever. God, I don't want that for anybody. God, help us to choose to follow you so that we can help people who struggle, so we can help the suicidal kid follow Jesus, so we can help the kid who doubts follow Jesus, so we can admit that we're all not good enough, but Jesus is great and follow him. God, help us to be brave, not to be scared of hell, but to be brave in our confidence of you. God, because if we have faith in you, we don't need to fear hell. We're not slaves to fear. We're not slaves to sin. Knowing what you did, knowing how you saved us. God, if there's anyone here who still struggles and and feels like, well, God's forcing me. He's making me or else he'll send me to hell. God, help them realize that hell is not a dungeon that you throw people into. It's, It's a dark place that we lock ourselves into by our own choice. Help them to realize that, God. The Bible says that you don't want anyone to go to hell. You don't want anyone to perish. You want all to live forever in your kingdom. God, I pray for the students here. If there's anyone here who currently is on the path to hell, I pray that today you would rip them off that path, path like you did to King or uh, like you did to Saul in the Bible, and show them what it means to follow you. We love you, Jesus, and we ask this in your name. Amen.